Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In every episode, we help you connect faith and the ideas and people who shape public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me here in our relevant radio AM 1330 studios in Golden Valley, Minnesota, is Rachel Herbeck, Minnesota Catholic Conference Outreach and Policy Coordinator. Rachel, always great to record these with you. Yeah, excited to be back for another interesting episode with some great topics. We are excited again to be in Relevant Radio Studios and grateful to them uh, to be a partnership in this uh, podcast. And we're also grateful to the sponsor of this episode of the Bridge Builder Podcast, the Knights of Columbus Minnesota State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we're talking about the connection between declining family stability and increasing secularization in society and the impact that has on all of us, we're joined by Mary Eberstadt of the Faith and Reason Institute for that conversation. She'll be in St. Paul at St. Thomas on October 22nd, and we'll mention that as well and say a little bit more about that great event coming up. In our classic Catholic social teaching segment, we're going to discuss the last sermon of Blessed Oscar Romero, um, who will be canonized by Pope Francis on October 14th, and the importance and the relevance of that sermon for our work in the public arena. Rachel, say a little bit to our listeners about what they can expect in our bricklayer segment. Yeah, so in the bricklayer segment, we're going to keep continuing on some of the themes that we've built on in our past podcasts. If you haven't listened to those, would encourage you to go do that. But we're going to talk about a really specific way um, that you can get in touch and build relationships with your legislators that are more than just a phone call, but a way that um, you can actually build more of a friendship and be a specific resource. So we're going to talk about that um, in our bricklayer segment today. Timely topic as we head toward uh, the election Absolutely, in yeah. November. So we'll finish out our podcast with a bit of sacred music, as usual, not performed by Rachel and me, but by the incredible voices from choirs around Minnesota. We are blessed to be joined now by Catholic author Mary Eberstadt. She is a senior fellow of the Faith and Reason Institute, formerly worked at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and is the author of several best-selling books, including Adam and Eve After the Pill, and how the West really lost God. She joined us to talk about the connection between the decline in the institution of the family and its relationship to secularization, along with some related themes in her writings. Mary, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Jason. Rachel, great to be here. For those not familiar with you or your work, and it is uh, expansive, tell us a little bit about yourself and your scholarly and professional interests and how your Catholic faith animates your work as well. I uh, started out writing when I was four years old, and although I'd say my primary vocation is as a wife and mother, um, I have been writing throughout my life in different genres. I've been a speechwriter, an essayist, uh, author of books, um, author of a work of fiction, and I think what's most important to me as a writer is trying to get at the truth, which sounds really trite, but in a secularizing time, and a time of growing animosity toward organized religion in general and toward the Catholic Church in particular, I think keeping our eyes on what is true and what is false is an increasingly uphill struggle, and that's what I try to do with my work. Well, I can definitely speak to how your work has done that, Mary. When I was a student at University of St. Thomas, the first introduction I had um, to you was I actually stumbled into a lecture you were giving on how the West really lost God by accident, and it totally blew my mind, and it was some commentary that I've never heard before. And so I want to dive into that a little bit. And so the kind of the conventional wisdom on that topic is that 
you know, first in the West, there was a, a religious decline and then there was a decline in the family, you know. So in your in your book and in some of the commentary you've given, it's kind of um, the opposite. So we, we have, you know, this discussion of what came first, the chicken or the egg. So can you talk a little about a little bit about that? What is your basic argument and kind of what's the connection between family decline and religious decline? Sure. Well, that's an example of where I think it's especially important to try and separate out truth from falsehood. Yeah. You know, ever since the Enlightenment, and with the help of the new atheists recently, this storyline has been put out there that the reason why people are going to church less and less, for example, is that people are getting smarter, the scientific revolution has convinced humanity that God doesn't exist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it becomes an argument about enlightenment and reason. But I don't think that's what the timeline shows at all. First of all, the historical timeline shows that we have periods of intense religiosity in history and periods of intense irreligiosity. So the idea that we're just getting smarter and smarter and can live without God doesn't stand up to the historical record. That's one problem with the dominant theory. But the other problem is that when you look closely at what's happened in the United States and in Western Europe, you see a perfect overlap between the sexual revolution and the acceleration of declining religiosity. And in my the argument that's made in How the West Really Lost God, I try and pick this apart piece by piece and show the mechanisms by which people are becoming less religious. And I think they have to do primarily with the shattering of the human family in so many households on account of the sexual revolution. So obviously this is related to contraception, it's related to the sharp rise in divorce and um, uh, births to single mothers, etc. But all of these things make it harder for people to understand the Christian story, first of all. How do you explain the Christian story of a loving, benevolent father to someone who may never have had such a father figure in his life? Mm. That's the kind of example that I get into in the book. Because I think there are many ways in which the, the manner in which humanity lives after the sexual revolution makes it harder for people to apprehend God. You use the analogy, Mary, in the book of the double helix. Faith and family are connected. Um, and I think it's an interesting one, but help us unpack that. And in a way, you know, is it the same that each is entwined in the other's decline? Is each sort of entwined in the other's growth and development? So we see from a fertility spec, uh, perspective, you know, the increase in fertility among one demographic in the U.S., particularly upper middle class folks. So, you know, whereas three used to be the new two, four is not even here four now is the new three. So is, are that, is that a hopeful development in terms of uh, pushback on secularization when we see fertility increases as well? Help us understand that double helix analogy a little bit. Yes, in using that analogy, I'm not pretending to be a scientist. I'm just observing that the most important thing about the double helix is that each side needs the other to reproduce. Each side is only as strong as the other. And I think this is very much true when it comes to family and religious faith, and I think it's true for a lot of reasons. Uh, if you look at religiosity, not only within Christianity, but across religions, you find what some demographers call the iron rule of demography, which is that the larger the family, the more religious people tend to be. So typically what's been said about that is, well, 
having large families is just something that religious people do. But I try to turn that upside down and say maybe there is something about living in families that is conducive to religiosity itself. So let's take the most humdrum obvious example. What brings people to church in the first place? Well, for many of them, it is having a baby. Having a baby uh, is, for most people, a transcendent experience. It makes them think about their relationship uh, within generations. It makes them uh, think about loving something enough to want it to live forever. There are all kinds of ways in which the having of a child predisposes people in a metaphysical direction. So if you live in a time when many people don't have children, when, say, many women of middle age have never held a baby, you can expect that at least one of the engines of religiosity itself has been interrupted. And I think that's part of what we're seeing in our world. And there's something to be said that, you know, having children or even deciding to have children expresses something of hope, hope for the future, uh, possibilities, um, something that's conducive and consistent with religious faith generally. Yes, absolutely. And also, on a more, um, I mean, on the most human level of all, to have a baby is to understand that you didn't build that thing, (laughs) Uh, that this is not something that you could have created yourself. And the Cold War writer Whitaker Chambers, I think, gets at this point beautifully in his memoir, where he writes about what it was that turned him away from atheism and toward Christianity. And it was watching his infant daughter in her high chair and just reflecting on how beautiful her little ear was. And he spins this story out and concludes with, it was at that moment that the finger of God was laid on my forehead and I began my move away from atheism. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think you have to be Whitaker Chambers to have an experience like that. I think most mothers and fathers of the world have that experience, whether they're conscious of it or not, day in and day out. And so the idea of existing within a created order, you know, of fellow creatures that's somehow ordered by somebody, and knowing that you can't do it yourself is also, I think, one of the things that predisposes people to belief in God. It's really interesting, Mary, as I'm, as we're talking about this as a young person kind of in the culture right now, a lot of counterparts or my peers that I know um, who maybe aren't already in the faith, there's this aversion to building, getting married and building families and especially having children because of, you know, they think of the sacrifice that it takes or different ways that we don't want to give up our autonomy. But then there's a whole group of people that that is being closed off to that path of finding God in that way or being open to faith. And so as we look at kind of the span of the culture right now and what's happening um, for people who would say, well, yeah, that's a that's a good thing, you know, because we don't want these kind of institutions suppressing us or we want to have autonomy um, based on a certain type of liberal liberalism. What would you say are some of the social costs um, for people to see of kind of going down this path of the decline of both religion and and the family as the building block of society? What are some of the social costs that secularists can see? Well, generations now of social science have established the problems uh, attendant on kids in broken homes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the behavioral problems, the emotional problems, uh, the trouble with school in many cases, and I'm not saying that to point a finger, 
at single mothers. I was raised in part by a single mother myself. But what I am observing is that everybody knows about these connections. So the rise in simple human unhappiness because of divided families is a social cost unto itself. Uh, there are other kinds of social costs, too. For example, to take a very different example, uh, a world in which um, family, families are less religious is a world in which uh, there is less philanthropy, less care for the poor. I'm going here by the works of Arthur Brooks, who has written two amazing books documenting the uh, connection between religiosity and charitable giving. So if you care about poor people, you also want strong religious families in your society because they're going to help with the problems of poor people. So those are two pretty major ways in which a world that's becoming more atomized and more secular is a world that is um, not in the interest of the worst off among us. Mary, I'm piggybacking on that point. You wrote a much-discussed essay in the Weekly Standard entitled The Primal Scream of Identity Politics. Fascinating piece. Thank you for doing that. And interestingly, you connect the desire for identity politics, which we see all around us, especially as we get closer to the election, we're going through the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, a politics of meaning and belonging to the young people um, is really a, a res- embrace of identity politics is a, a response on their part and an understandable one to family collapse and family fragmentation. Can you open that up for us just a little bit um, and help us understand the connection? Yes, thanks, Jason. I was thinking for some months that it was a mistake to dismiss expressions of identity politics as just, you know, so many snowflakes or spoiled middle-class kids on campus, which is pretty much how the issue of identity politics has tended to be treated uh, by many, say, conservatives or tradition-minded people. The reason I think that's a mistake is that when you look at some of these eruptions, when you look at, say, some of the demonstrations where students tape their mouths shut and put their hands over their ears, where, where, or to take another example, where women are screaming and crying on the steps of the Supreme Court when they find out that there's a decision um, helpful to the abortion advocates, you see the deep, deep emotion attendant on these issues. Why is it, I ask in the essay, that identity has become so all-consuming for so many people? And I think the reason is that the old ways of knowing our identities, say as a, a mother, a sister, an aunt, a grandmother, whatever it is, um, no longer exist for many people. They can't construct that plank-by-plank plank building of an identity based on their familial relations. Why? Because many people don't live in families. More people live by themselves than ever before. And so the conventional ways of answering that question, who am I, don't exist in human relations the way they used to. And so people are desperate, I think. That's why I call it the primal scream of identity politics. They're desperate to assemble an answer for themselves to that question, who am I? Hmm. Yeah, and so as we're as we're discussing these things, you know, you, you talk about the question, who am I? That's a huge question, and it's deep rooted. And so these things that we're talking about, um, they need a renewal and a recommitment to Christian faith and to to move back the tide of secularization and all these things. But for our listeners, Mary, can you maybe give 
a practical solution or something specific that people can latch onto within the broader context of kind of the overhaul that needs to be done of some of these deep-seated issues? Well, I think a backlash is coming, honestly, because 50-plus years into the sexual revolution, the problems with the way many of us live uh, are ever more apparent. I think we see this in a, in a backhanded way with the young converts who come into the church or the reverts who were raised really without much Catholicism at all. You know, when they find for the first time the authentic teaching of the church, they are illuminated by it, and they're passionate about it. And mm-hmm. some of the best writers out there today, younger writers, uh, are coming at the faith from the position of being a convert and contrasting what they find in Catholicism with what they see in the broken secular world. And I think there's going to be more and more movement like that into the Church, even as the numbers of regular attendees go down. So that is to say the Church of tomorrow is going to be built, I think, with a much more uh, fiery core of real believers, and that's a good thing. Mary, you'll be here October 22nd in Minnesota at St. Paul at the University of St. Thomas for an event um, that's also part of the Archdiocese's recognition of the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, and we're excited for you to attend the event called Contraception, Why Not? Rethinking Humanae Vitae in 2018. You've written extensively about Humanae Vitae as well, and on this 50th anniversary of the encyclical, uh, which you've described as prophetic, what are the ways that you think the encyclical foreshadows some of the arguments you've been making about the connection between faith and family? Well, it's funny. I think my writing on Humanae Vitae was uh, what first turned me in the direction of writing about the Church. Uh, And the reason is that some years ago, for the 40th anniversary of the encyclical, a friend who was running First Things magazine asked me to write about it. And I had never read Humanae Vitae, like most other Catholics I'd wager. And when I did, I was absolutely floored, because here was a document which I knew to be one of the most reviled in modern history. Everybody loves to beat up on the Catholic Church for its stand on birth control. And yet, here in this document, we see the clearest prediction of what the world will look like after the sexual revolution. We see the prediction that there will be a lessening of respect for women by men. I don't think any young woman, um, including young secular women, would argue with the idea that there's very little respect for women now. Uh, They might disagree about why that's so. Uh, The encyclical, of course, identified it with widespread contraception. But that was one prediction that came true. Another one, which couldn't possibly have been foreseen at the time, was that governments would use contraceptive technology coercively to the detriment of their citizens. And we have seen this, of course, in China via its long-running barbaric one-child policy. We've seen it in India. We've seen it in other places. And so this was something that, again, didn't even exist when the document was written. How was that foreseen? So those are two examples of the prophecies in that document, and there are others as well. It's a stunning um, projection of humanity's fate 50 years later. Yet another blessing of Humanae Vitae is the inspiration it gave to Mary Eberstadt to produce a whole lot of great writing and scholarship. Mary, you're a gift to the Church and a gift to the public square. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to being out there with you. And that's for our listeners October 22nd at the University of St. Thomas. 
Um, more information can be found at the Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis website, archspm.org. Don't miss Mary Eberstadt on October 22nd. Thanks again, and we will be right back. In our segment on classic Catholic social teaching, we try to pick a document or a text that's particularly relevant to the times or is um, having an anniversary that's worth revisiting and reflection. Um, We've talked about Veritatis Splendor, Humanae Vitae, um, a number of great texts thus far. Today, we're looking at a sermon, a sermon of the uh, soon-to-be canonized Archbishop Oscar Romero, Archbishop Romero was martyred for the faith in his preaching of the gospel in 1980. He was Archbishop of San Salvador in El Salvador, and his last sermon has a lot to say to us um, about the role of the church in the public arena, about the role of the faithful in the public arena, speaking to injustice and speaking out in defense of the dignity of the human person and Catholic social teaching. Um, Prophetic would be the right word, and that's a reason that Archbishop Romero is being canonized, but really a, a, a sermon that um, everyone should check out. But he cornered, his cornerstone is really the defense of human dignity, that the church's work in the public arena is a strong defense of human dignity, particularly the dignity of the poor and the vulnerable. Rachel, what really stood out for you in this sermon? Yeah, there were a lot of things, but I think right off the bat, I love in all all things that Romero does, but especially in this sermon, um, his connection between the kingdom of God and what's happening here. And so he really, through his work, and we see it here specifically in this sermon, he takes kind of these concepts of Christianity out of the world of theory. You know, and he starts right in the first paragraph, he says, Christ desires to unite himself with humanity. And humanity is not just a theory. You know, it's not just a thing up here. It's actual human beings and their experiences. And a lot of times that has to do with injustices, that has to do with violations of human dignity. And so actually that these Christian principles and values are not meant to be separated from even the deepest trenches of human experience. And the what's inspiring, I think, and really unnerving at the same time, which was what makes it, I think, particularly interesting, is his, and, and regularly in his speeches and sermons and writings, you see the call to repentance, right? That ultimately, that for social structures to be changed and transformed, there needs to be personal renewal. So he's always calling uh, the people who are acting as the oppressors, the soldiers, the, the military junta, the oligarchy to repentance because they are oppressing and murder, in fact, murdering the poor and those who speak out in their defense. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a lesson for all of us who work in the public arena. We always focus on making reason arguments. We use what's called public reason to make arguments that aren't necessarily rooted in the faith in in, in terms of revelation, right? Because Mm -hmm. we want to make them accessible to all people. We want to persuade people. We want to use appeal to people's reason that something is a good public policy. But sometimes we need to remind people that they are under the justice of God Mm -hmm. and that they need to repent and that repentance um, is the first step to personal and social renewal. Absolutely. Yeah. And going off that, I love his combination of the practical and the spiritual because he does talk about in this, these really like practical injustices that are happening. You know, he's talking specifically about these murders that are happening. He's calling out people that have committed the murders and he's encouraging people to fight injustice. But at the same time, as he's doing that, he's saying, you know, he's, he says the task of the Christians must be to absorb 
the spirit of God's kingdom. You know, and so I think right now in our culture, we deal with a lot of dichotomies or we separate things that should be together. You know, and we say, well, you either have to have, you know, just a intense social justice warrior or be somebody spiritual, you know, and we separate all these things that should come together. But he's really saying, you, you know, unless your activity is clothed in the spirit of God and is clothed really in the hope of heaven, then it's not going to be successful. He says it's going to be a, a fleeting project. So he encourages people to do practical things. He doesn't say only sit at home and just hope that everything's going to be better. But then he also says, but if you don't do it with the right spiritual attitude, it's not going to be the right thing to do. Because ultimately the church and Christians seek the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. right? So he encourages people to be involved in political parties and the political process, working for change. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely right, because it is the role of the lady to bring gospel principles into the public square. But for the church, for her part, and this is something that he was criticized for, was politicizing the gospel. Mm -hmm. He makes clear that the, the church really is there to be heralds of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a part of any political. He says um, the church in history is not attached to any one social system, to any political organization, to any party. The church does not identify herself with any of those forces because she is the eternal pilgrim of history and is indicating at every historical moment what reflects the kingdom of God and what does not reflect the kingdom of God. She is the servant of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So the church is an institution, the church as the body of Christ, you know, we, we are heralds of the gospel. We are heralds of the kingdom. We speak out against injustice and highlight and identify injustice, but the tools of transformation and renewal are really the tools of the gospel, the vocabulary of grace, sin, and redemption. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's so necessary right now um, in our own lives, in our communities, in our church, in the broader culture, is to reflect the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? It means to have a heavenly perspective. And so to rekindle in ourselves and in those in our community a desire for heaven for where we're going. And that's something that I love about Romero's writings is he's always looking ahead and he's always working for justice and working for the good of others in the context of an eternal home. And I think sometimes we lose in our day-to-day -day lives this desire and we, we push down the longing for our eternal home, you know? And so as we're looking to reflect the kingdom of God, we can't reflect it unless we have a desire for it. And unless we have a desire for to be with God forever in heaven and to bring his kingdom on earth. And that's what it boils down to is the first seek God mm -hmm. is to seek God in all things. There's a lot of criticism of uh, Archbishop Romero, both within the church and outside the church and his canonization uh, was in fact delayed for some time. But spending some, having spent some times with his writing, um, one can see uh, the inspiration uh, it certainly had on Pope Benedict XVI, this idea of liberation theology. There's a correct form of liberation theology and an incorrect one. And mm -hmm. Pope Benedict having to study that as uh, the prefect of the congregation for the doctrine of faith, separating out what is good from what is wrong. And you see that um, what he highlights, what Pope Benedict highlights in his own writings as the proper understanding of a theology of liberation. Uh, that's really what Oscar Romero gets at as well in this sermon, but also in his other writings. So um, he's canonized by Francis, but uh, you see a deep resonance um, with the, the positive elements of liberation theology that impacted him and his prophetic witness, but also um, picked up by Pope Benedict in his writings uh, as well, and particularly as an encyclical Deus Caritas S, but also in trips to places like Benin um, and other places in Africa as well. So a very fantastic sermon. Any last thoughts on it, Rachel? 
No, I mean, I think that last point to connecting Benedict to its good and making the distinction between, you know, a proper understanding of liberation theology and a misunderstanding of liberation theology. And, you know, even thinking about what he says here, one thing he says is Christians are meant to be liberators. As Christians, we should be liberators. And that's what scripture tells us, you know, that each of us are called to set the captives free, to break chains. And, And so that's very, that's not politicizing the gospel at all. That is the gospel, this proper understanding. Amen. Amen. Stay with us. We can't leave it at the level of theory. We have to put our faith into practice. And Rachel is our in-house expert at bringing your faith into the public arena. We want to give you practical tips Uh, not just leave everything at the level of ideas. How can you make a positive impact in your corner of the vineyard? Hence, on each podcast, we have at the end what's called the brick layer segment. Uh, If we're going to be bridge builders, first, uh, that starts brick by brick. we got to be brick layers. So what's one brick in the wall, Rachel, for this week? Yeah, so we've been talking about both elections and then also talking about building positive relationships with your legislators. So one thing that I want to talk about today that's a really practical thing for you to do in your community is to actually host um, candidates or people who are in office. It can be, um, you know, the, the county commissioner, but it can also be the people who are running for office for the House of Representatives um, here in Minnesota. But people that are in your community that have positions of leadership, um, to host them in your home with other people, your friends, so maybe about 10 couples to host them in your home with 20 people and do a little meet and greet. Really simple, straightforward. And so it's both a way to give people access to those leaders and to have them build positive relationships and then also a way for people's voices to be heard. And I think even more and more as we're working in the public arena, we're just seeing that that is so important. Um, I recently was just out in St. Cloud meeting with a group of about 20 people, and it was just such a positive experience for us to be able to sit together in a circle, talk about the issues and concerns that are happening, and people were just really happy to have a voice, you know, to have people listening to them. So I think a really important thing you can do as a leader in your community is to give people an opportunity for that. Yeah, people are feeling disenfranchised. They Mm -hmm. don't know what to do, how to engage politically, they don't feel like there is a place where they can have a voice. And so interestingly, these little small groups within just local communities are popping up where people Mm -hmm. can get together and try to have a constructive conversation about politics, all sides of the aisle, all sorts of uh, across the spectrum. But when you as a leader in your community can, and I'm talking about the listener, not Mm -hmm. just Rachel, um, when you as a leader can invite 10 or 15 people over for wine and cheese mm-hmm. and invite a legislator or a politician or a candidate at whatever level, not just, you know, Congress is going to be really hard to do that. Right. But if you at the local level, this is something that you can absolutely do. And believe me, uh, people in elected office or candidates hoping for elected office, they will definitely come to these sorts of events. Fifteen engaged people can pay huge dividends in a local election and in a campaign. So they certainly want to do this, and you can do this. City council, county commissioner, um, great people running for county commissioner, and no one knows what they do, Mm -hmm. what they stand for, and why they're running. Great opportunity. Again, be entrepreneurial. 10 or 15 friends, host wine and cheese, and invite a candidate to come over and just talk about the issues that people give people 
an opportunity to express themselves and have someone who can make a difference really listen. Right. And it's just another way to provide that human connection, you know, because we're all getting emails on our phone. We're all getting phone calls. Another way to provide human connection for people in your community to the leaders. And if you're, you know, Jason mentioned some of those different candidates that are running, that there's some good candidates. You can go super easy to the Secretary of State website and find it almost instantly on the homepage with the links. And then you can see all the people in your community that are running for all the different offices um, if you haven't already. And that'll give you a really good idea for that. And in addition to that, a um, reminder that you can go to mncatholic.org forward slash election to get any election resources that you need. Um, one particular one is a candidate questionnaire that you can send out to the candidates um, in your area to get answers to certain questions to see where they stand on different issues. So there's just a reminder on that if you need anything, mncatholic.org forward slash election. That's a wrap for today, Rachel. We Listeners can catch the next episode of our podcast on SoundCloud. Join us on Facebook at MN Catholic, on Twitter at MN Catholic Conf, C-O-N-F at the end, and check out our YouTube channel as well. Again, a big thank you to our partners, Relevant Radio 1330 AM, and our sponsor for this episode, Minnesota State Council of the Knights of Columbus. I am a proud fourth-degree knight. Meant listeners who are men out there, you should be as well. Uh, protect your families with good insurance, but also have built-in opportunities to serve your community. Join the Knights of Columbus. You can even do it online now. Thanks for listening, and make sure you share this podcast with all your friends and family. And again, what better way to end our podcast of great conversations uh, than with great sacred music? Here is the Gregorian Chant School of St. John's Abbey and University perform- performing Vivo Autem Ego, I Still Live, in remembrance of St. Francis of Assisi, whose feast day is October 4th, the 792nd anniversary of his passing to eternal life at the young age of 45. He is the founder of all, he considered the founder of all Franciscan orders and patron saint of ecologists and merchants, St. Francis of Assisi. Pray for us. God bless you all. Thank you.